So tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about compassion, karuna, in the um, in the context of what we were talking, what I talked a little bit about this morning in the reflection, the sense of when we realize emptiness, the uh, lack of inherent existence of any phenomena. And I read from Dingo Kensi this morning, when you realize all phenomena are empty and at the same time appearing, existing, we don't just leave it there, you know, hanging out in nothingness. But the natural response, the corollary, the kind of completion, you could say, the other side of the realization of emptiness is the manifestation, the response of um, the good heart, as His Holiness calls it, um, generosity, metta or friendliness, compassion, non-harming. It just makes sense. So this is one of my favorite ways of expressing it from Nisargadatta. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself, you are free from desire and fear on the one hand, and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. Okay, think of that not in a depressing way. (laughs) Think of that in a way of, uh, well, it just makes total sense when we're so concerned and caught up with the obsessive self-referencing of me, me, me. I'm the center of everything, good, bad, indifferent. So we know, we've talked about that a lot. There's not really room to feel with, to have your heart quiver with, to be open to, present for, the, the pain, the sorrow of all of humankind. We're hardly even present for our own, you know. The natural effect, the natural response of the in a moment, just in a moment, you know, when the heart, the mind uh, is realizing this lack of inherent self-existence, the flip side is we're all, you know, it's all us. We're all it. The natural response, what the Tibetans call ceaselessly responsive, is the response of caring, the response of connectedness. Whether that would be the appropriate response would be compassion in the face of pain or suffering, mudita in the face of joy, simple connectedness, friendliness, metta, whenever we meet anyone, generosity, if that's called for. But it's a manifest, I, I like to think of it as a tenderness for beings, ourself included, rather than, as Nisargadatta said, um, free from desire and fear, the desire to complete ourselves, the fear that somebody else or something is going to get in the way. Nyoshil Kempo said, Someone who realizes that all phenomena are empty and who realizes the non-existence of self or ego will naturally have spontaneous compassion for all sentient beings who do not realize this truth of emptiness and so who continue to suffer through delusion and clinging. I mean, have you ever noticed that? I mean, in ourselves, of course. It's always, of course, easier to notice it in others. When we can see that someone's really suffering through holding on to some idea, 
through holding on to needing something. And we can just see, not with judgment, but just see how unnecessary that is. When we're seeing that with balance, with equanimity, we don't think that stupid jerk, get over it. It's a natural response is, wow, so much suffering over something that isn't even real. You know, like when we're waking from a nightmare. It's the natural response. It's not like we have to, you know, do something, crank it up. We can work with that, sure. But what I love about awareness, what I love about mindfulness practice, is that simply by recognizing the truth of how things are, compassion, metta, generosity spontaneously develop, grow, and manifest in us, starting with thought, moving to speech, moving to action. You don't have to be some special kind of person. It's the natural response. You know, this just struck me last time I was in, I guess it was in Burma. This could be completely not true. It's just something I made up, but it, it struck me in terms of the sense of naturally moving from the constriction of all about me and how narrow that is and how self-serving and how much that breeds desire and fear. I just uh, was noticing, I don't know, from hanging out in Burma and with different Burmese people, how my sense of, of me and also what I experienced with my family, with friends here in the States, in the West, is it's very much me is me, like one person. It's about me and my identity and my ego and making my way in the world, and it's like a, a one-person sense of identity, Right? And what I was, I've noticed quite often, actually, in groups in Burma in particular, some in Thailand too, whether it's the family group or even a group of people that you're sitting at the table together day after day in a monastery on retreat, that the sense of looking at what, what about me is really what about us, us, the me being extended to the family group or the group at the table just a natural kind of inclusion, not of everybody, but at least a little bit bigger than just me. Example, I'm remembering years ago, I was on a long retreat at a meditation center, Moby, actually where Venerable Aryanani used to live. And you'd sit for the meals at the same table every day with the same people. So I sat with three other women. And I'm not, I don't mean to be, I'm not being critical, I'm just trying to report one of the women they, they were from different places, Indonesia, Korea. I think two from Indonesia, one from Korea. One of them, she was a nun, but I, her personality was really very greedy. She was always asking the, the women who worked there to go and get her special food and do special things for her and complaining about the food. So I'm just saying this as you'll see in the bigger picture. And they were always so happy to do it for her. It was lovely. But in terms of sitting, and because and you share, they, they put like pots of curry and you share it. You don't get your own plate. I would notice that I'd be in my own little, you know, Carol's meditating world, taking my curry completely in my own little place. And the other three, all of them, were much more tuned into the whole table. They'd notice if I was out and hand me, and it wasn't like, and I I made a point of saying this one woman was kind of greedy and self-involved, because I'm just not saying it's not like she was some special, compassionate person, but that was just more the sense of me extended beyond just me to, to the group. I don't know, somehow this was like a huge insight for me, <laughs> that it's a, it's a convention, right? It's a convention. And so in our practice, 
when we just recognize for a moment that this idea of me is just a thought, just a convention, just a feeling, the natural response that comes from that is compassion, is inclusion. As Ajahn Sumedho likes to describe awareness as the point that includes nothing left out. So that's the natural way we move into compassion. Nyoshal Kempo also likes to describe, I'm kind of um, paraphrasing here, he says that the difference between the deluded mind and the enlightened mind is mainly a difference of narrowness and openness. So he says a, a deluded normal mind is it, in our ordinary life, our minds, our hearts tend to be very narrow, meaning closed in on itself, mostly concerned with the happiness and well-being of ourself and those really close to us, our family, and not really thinking too much or giving much concern to the happiness and suffering of the vastness of sentient beings. But he says, through our practice, what happens is our mind and heart constantly becomes less rigid, broader, more open, not so narrow, and that this is really the way of the Buddha, where he lived with compassion and care for all sentient beings, no one left out. So he says our whole path is a movement from this narrowness of self-centeredness in those close to us to considering the well-being and of all sentient beings. I like that. So the way that this shows up in the terms of how the Buddha describes the way the mind works, the way the connection between emptiness, compassion, friendliness, generosity, and how we are in the world ceaselessly responsive is that, you know, when you're sitting and we say, or walking, or eating, everything comes and goes. All phenomena come. There's sense door contact. You notice it. It goes. Nothing's more important than anything else. Nothing's to be clung to as me or mine. And in that space, and I keep saying, awareness doesn't care what's happening, right? Nothing really matters. And that's true on that side of emptiness. But if we take it without the corollary of ceaselessly responsive, if we take that into the world, nothing really matters. Awareness doesn't care and neither do I. You know, whatever is happening, that's just what's happening. That's just what is and to hell with it, you know. Called falling into emptiness. It's actually massive delusion. So ceaselessly responsive is when the whatever factors in the mind or heart coalesce in the mind in a moment into what the Buddha describes as intention, motivation. Intention, right intention, is actually the second step of the Eightfold Path. The first being right view, right understanding. So you could say this understanding of no inherent self-existence. That's right view, one example of right view. Four Noble Truths, right view. That leads to how we understand ourselves in the world forms the qualities, the states in the mind and heart that, that coalesce, you could say, our energy into intention. And intention's that uh, quality in the mind, factor in the mind, a volition that leads to thought, to speech, to action. So the Buddha, when he spoke about right intention, it's actually sometimes translated as right thought. Right intention being very specifically 
that the intention of greed transforms, and it transforms naturally through wisdom to renunciation or generosity. The uh, unwise intention of ill will transforms naturally into friendliness or metta. The uh, suffering, the unwise intention of cruelty transforms naturally into compassion. And I would also, I'm saying this, call it pity or indifference as well, transforms into compassion. This is, starts by simply being in a state of mind, a quality of mind and heart. We experience just sitting here in response to thoughts, in response to action, but it moves to a stronger intention motivates speech and a stronger intention motivates action. So ceaselessly responsive, when we talk about compassion, which the description of compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, our own or another. And sometimes uh, Buddhism gets the rap of being very uh, passive, you know. So you think, okay, so we sit here and let our hearts quiver and, you know, feel good about ourselves, and that's the end of it. But of course not. Of course not. That's where we start. But as it gets stronger, and in the appropriate uh, situation, that, that intention will naturally move into speech and action. Intention's really interesting, just in terms of understanding uh, action and uh, result, kama and vipaka, kama and result, in terms of how the Buddha talked about it. Because kama just means action. And when he talks about wholesome or unwholesome action, not like a moralistic judgment, but actions that leads to um, happiness, goodness, to wholesome results, actions that cause more suffering for ourselves and others. That's unwholesome. The seed of the action, the determining aspect of the action, isn't the result of the action, because basically that's not in our control most of the time. The seed of action is the intention. And this is the place when we've been, I've been been yapping on and on for two months about this, that what we're doing is purifying the mind stream, purifying the heart stream, the habits of our mind. This is what forms our intentions. This is the heart of awakening, the heart of how we move and act in the world. Because the same action from seen from outside could come from many, many different intentions. And I know personally that one can really fool others as to one's intention. It looks good. But the seed inside ourselves, well, we can even fool ourselves, but it can't fool karma. (laughs) It's just what it is. So the example in the suttas about intention is, is, it's it's an example of a, a monk, a bhikkhu at the time of the Buddha who was blind and doing walking meditation outside in the forest. And he was supposed to be an arhat, which means completely awakened, which means in the way that the Buddha talked about it, that he would not, it would not be possible for him to, to consciously harm, a, it would not be possible for him to harm living beings. There would be no cruelty, greed, or aversion in his mind. So he's doing walking meditation, and there's a whole stream of ants, and he's walking over back and forth across these ants and killing them. And so some of the other bhikkhus, the other monks, saw this, and went running to the Buddha, 
said, he's supposed to be an arhant, but he's killing ants, so what do you say about that? And if you read the Vinaya, the, the, the whole book of monk's rules, it's, it's not meant to be funny, but it's interesting because really, I really get a sense of, of human nature hasn't changed very much. A great many of the rules are from the bhikkhus running to the Buddha and going, yeah, 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 he's doing this, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, okay, obviously you think the spirit of it would be this, but I see I have to make a rule, you know, and we won't even get into it, but it's on and on. In the beginning there were hardly any rules, and then they keep adding up, adding up. So anyway, the Buddha said, yeah, well, he, he, is, he is an arhat. Only the Buddha could say that, but you say he is. He's blind. He does not know that there are ants there. There is no intention, no motivation, no volition in his mind whatsoever to harm living beings. And so it's not an unwholesome karmic action. So I just I think that's interesting. I'm just putting it out for us to explore in ourselves. Because so much our tendency is, well, if it comes out to a good effect, it's been good. And maybe that has been good. I mean, that's still good. But the seed is really in the intention. Now, once that bhikkhu knew that there were ants, if he just said, well, who cares, and kept on walking, that's very different. Right? It's very different. So this is the place to really explore in ourselves what it's like when we think, speak, act from desire or not from aversion, from not. And again, what I'm saying is so beautiful. What I really love is that through clear seeing, through wisdom naturally arising in the mind as a a function of moment after moment of clear seeing, our habits of mind, our intentions naturally transform, naturally. How many times, maybe even just here, if you've been here a while, or in your life, just pick some, somebody's just bugging you. And we don't pick the biggest, most difficult, experienced person in your life, but just something that's bugging you, you're crossing paths, you're feeling aversion, judgment, blame, the whole deal. And at some point, you stop. And you stop projecting, you stop buying into the ill will, and there's just this sense of connectedness. This happens to me all the time. I just stop and let myself look at or feel with or just be there with a sense of that person Or in my mind, I think, well, how would I feel if I acted like that? How would it feel to act like that? Immediately, in that openness to connect, and it's not not the hugest thing in your life, okay, but in littler things, in that connectedness, the sense of me and what I think and views is gone, and compassion naturally is there. Wow, that would be suffering. There's no more anger. There's no more judgment. There's not even that sense of me and you. It's not about what's best for me. It's what's best for us. And that just naturally comes about. Trying to think what to do in a situation instead of me and everybody else, it's us. The us might be here in this room, here in the center, in the whole world. It doesn't mean we know what's best for us, right? That's another piece. It doesn't mean we have all the information, and sometimes we'll never have all the information. And it may be what we really clearly think is best for us, we're not able to actually put into effect. Okay, then our job, our awareness, the wisdom is, can we keep coming from the compassion, 
the connectedness rather than the frustration of all these these incredibly dense people not seeing so clearly what's best for us and acting on it by God. So really, how we speak, think, act, mostly when we're not you know, consciously doing what just comes up is the habits, the old habits we've been talking about. It's beautiful to see them transform, but how, one of my favorite lines from the Buddha is, whatever one frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. And without, again, getting scared about it, just explore. Whatever one think, frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. A lot of what happens for many people in intensive meditation retreats is we, we see, kind of like in neon lights, some of the habits of our mind, some of the not-so-lovely habits, but also start to see some of the beautiful ones. But part of when people are really kind of struggling, when it feels like, oh, you're up against the wall or moving through muck or whatever, sometimes retreats are really hard that way. It's because the habits that we didn't even know, they're so familiar, like an old glove. We didn't even know they were habits. They start to stand out in neon. Ah, seeing them is different from believing them and being them. That's the key. That's the transformation. How we meet what's currently arising in our mind, that's where wisdom and compassion are developing. Not by what's happening, but by how we meet it. The habits of our mind, that becomes who we are. The intentions. I've been spending the last few years a lot of time in nursing homes, assisted living homes, hanging out with... uh, uh, elderly men and women with dementia, really a lot of time. And uh, seeing, and I won't say Alzheimer's, because sometimes that kind of seems to kind of eat at the brain and actually change the personality like a kind of disease. But there's a different kind of dementia, which my, my mom has, where you're essentially the same person, but you're just not remembering so much. And the habits of mind are just so clear. And I want to tell you, it's sometimes it's scary. They're just so clear. So my mother has become much more childlike and um, enjoying. We'll be on the way to somewhere like the doctor, and she won't remember where we're going or even why we're going to the doctor. When I remind her, she doesn't even remember that she's sick unless she coughs. But on the way, she'll stop and go, wow, those trees are so beautiful. I just love looking at those clouds. 50 times on the way, but I love looking at those clouds, and it's fresh, it's new, you know? And um, there's other people, like Ajahn Sumedho was telling this story, but he went to some nursing home in England, and there was one old lady, the first thing she'd say is, you're not getting my money, you know? (laughs) So sad. I mean, that's the reality. My mother, every time I go, what can I do for you, honey? And so that's, that's, that's her thing. And Yeah. So it's both beautiful and scary to see. Well, what I really want to emphasize is we may not even realize how much the habits of our mind are shifting 
simply through the moment-to-moment clear seeing of awareness. That's really like, it's just great, you know. We're just noticing what's happening, noticing what's happening, noticing what's happening. But each moment that we notice what's happening, we're not feeding greed. We're not feeding aversion, ill will. We're actually strengthening connectedness, compassion. In every moment, this is from a book I read many years ago, where the person said, in every moment of activity, we are committing to something. The question is, to what? So just noticing, and it's not so much the object we're committing to, but to the way what's in the mind that's paying attention, what quality of mind is present in how we meet this moment. Currently arising experience, say a moment of greed, a moment of love, some memory that comes up from the past, some fear, that's the result of previous action, previous karma. Just, that's just what's happening. How we meet it in the moment is the present moment karma, which will create the future results. And this is why how we meet our joys and our demons in our life, in our meditation retreat here, that's why the difficult times are so important. And it really doesn't matter the magnitude of the difficulty. I mean, some people at times might have really huge suffering either in their external life at the moment or huge trauma that's coming up or they're just just a kind of person whose nervous system is incredibly sensitive and it seems like massive suffering. And someone else might be think, well, my suffering's nothing, you know. It's just that my knee hurts or I'm feeling a little lonely. But it's not about comparing suffering or the quality of it, the degree of it. All of our suffering, any of our suffering, it's good enough. (laughs) It's good enough to awaken with. It's good enough to meet with this openness of heart of mind, this connectedness that is is the response of compassion in the moment. That's really, when we hate what's happening, when we push it away, that's the response of aversion. Okay, next moment, another chance to meet it with compassion. doesn't matter. So if we just had retreats, which life isn't like this, so I won't even say if we just had life like it, but if we just had retreats that are all nice and go from good to better to best, pleasant to beautiful to sunny, light and bright and peaty, and that's all that ever happened, it just wouldn't really do the job. But I somehow know, I've never met anyone, that that's all that ever happened to. Some people get it more than others, but it doesn't matter. They suffer. Still, they suffer. Don't worry. Everybody's suffering. (laughs) And we get just the suffering we need, you know? When His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about compassion, or bodhicitta, which is the ultimate compassion, the noble or awakened heart, the, the, conscious, um, the conscious motivation to practice, to awaken, in order to 
bring all beings to awakening. So that really our conscious motivation in, in meeting our knee pain, in meeting our loneliness, to really meet it with compassion, not only for ourselves, but so that we can be of aid to all beings. It's vast. But he says, how does this vastness of compassion develop? Well, it starts by insight into what suffering is, what pain is, what sorrow is. And how do we get that insight? He says, by focusing on, by needing our own experience. By really opening to suffering in our own hearts, in our own minds, where else are we going to learn it? And from that place, and again, this is still a Dalai Lama, that compassion then strengthens as we move into a sense of empathy, a sense of connectedness with all beings. So I love that in terms of of meditation retreat, in terms of our life, awareness in our life. Where do we start? We start where we are, right here. How do we start? Simply by meeting this moment with kind attention. Sharon likes to say, Sharon Salisbury likes to say, to pay attention is to love. I really like that. You get the sense when you're suffering, if someone's just really there with you, kind, present, non-judging, not trying to fix, just really there with you while you talk or whatever you need to do. It really, to me, that's a real experience of feeling loved, feeling received, feeling cared for. And in some ways, it's kind of rare. So we start by bringing that to ourselves. This paying attention is to love. To love is to connect with, to accept. And from that, the wisdom arises that moves into the ceaselessly responsive, whatever's appropriate. We just start simply in this moment, right now. Desmond Tutu, you know, the, um, the man from South Africa, Eric Fisher from South Africa, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, who was one of the instrumental people in organizing and carrying out the peace and reconciliation process they went through after the end of apartheid. He was just recently in Boston. And I just heard a little snippet, a little snippet of what he said uh, on the radio this morning. He was, um, I'm not sure what he was, he was facilitating. I heard he was facilitating a group of Israelis and Palestinians. But what I actually heard was a little snippet where he was taking questions and answers from um, young women and men like uh, late teenagers in Boston who uh, were coming from schools and areas where there was a lot of violence, a lot of hatred. And so I, I just heard this one young man asking him, he said, you, you, Bishop Tutu, you say that we learn to hate. We're not born hating. It's not our natural state. He said, we learn to hate. But he said, you know, I'm a student in this violent environment where there's so much hatred and there's so much fear. So how can we, in the midst of this culture, how can we learn to love? How can we bring that to the culture? And then I just heard, I just, I was doing so, I just heard this little line from Desmond Tutu said with a great deal of emphasis, a great deal of, of passion, he said to the enemy, he goes, you, and he really emphasized it, you 
can make a difference. You, you, you. And you could tell he was just saying you and pointing to all the people there. He said it so fervently. He said, one person can make a big difference. You start with you. Learn to love here and now. Now, this is me saying, so what we can do is you, you, me, start now. Learn to love, at least learn not to hate this present moment, whatever's arising. Beautiful, ugly, scary, boring, not what we need, crappy practice, whatever it is. Learn to love. How do we love? Simply by paying attention. Whatever it is. This is from Payment Children. He says, how are we ever going to change anything? How is there going to be less aggression in the universe rather than more? She says, it starts by being willing to feel what we are going through. It starts with being willing to have a compassionate relationship with the parts of ourselves that we feel are not worthy of existing on this planet. If we are willing through meditation to be mindful not only of what feels comfortable, but also of what pain feels like, if we even aspire to stay awake and open to what we're feeling, to recognize and acknowledge it as best we can in each moment, then something begins to change. I like that. Just even aspire. Don't even try to be successful. Just have the willingness, as someone said today, to be here. And I was just today, it just hit me really strongly. I was, I think I was walking up here. I was walking somewhere. And uh, at the moment, my, mom, my mother's really sick. And, and um, I have to go down there in a few days and go through some whole thing. And it was just kind of weighing on me. And I could, as I was walking up, I could just kind of feel that, that little bit of distance of like I could name it, I could feel it, but just that little bit of distance. And just in the noticing it, boom, my attention just really dropped in, quit trying to hold myself separate. And it, I mean, how many times has this happened in my life? A million, right, that I've been watching my mind. It's like, oh, right. This, as soon as you drop in, quit fighting, surrender, quit trying to figure out, just feel whatever it is. You don't have to know what it is. That's the place where compassion naturally arises. The sense of love, the sense of connectedness. Duh, you know, (laughs) holding away is separation, feeling is connectedness. There's nothing else to do. And also, I might say, the place of freedom. There's no more fear, no more problem. It's just this. I mean, I've experienced that a million times. The habit is still to push away. Oh, right. This is the place of freedom, right here the place of connectedness. So really looking at how we meet what's arising. How do we meet the demons that are coming up in our own experience here? And oh, I want to read you a story from Milarepa that I like about this, why I'm using the word demon. So you know who Milarepa was, right? The incredible Tibetan yogi, one of the most famous in the cave for years and years. Great poet, so I'm going to really condense this. But he was in his cave, and he, uh, he be- his mind became very blissful. He'd been there a long time, so he was really tripping out on his uh, meditation. <laughs> and he was out getting wood, and he carried some wood up to his cave. 
And when he got back there, he found in the cave seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, and some were grinding sampa, barley flour. Some sat performing various magical tricks. So basically, they'd made themselves at home, right? And when Mila saw them, he became frightened. So he meditated on his deity, he uttered a subjugating mantra, he performed a subjugating gaze, he did all the tricks he knew to make them go away. Then he meditated on compassion and friendliness. But he still could not pacify them. I just love that, because that seems like that's the order, do everything you can to make them go away. And they go, oh yeah, compassion, right. But they still don't go. So he thought... Maybe these are local deities of the place, and I have been here for months and years. I have not really praised them. So then he sang them a song of praise, so trying to basically say, okay, okay, we can live here together. And at the end he said, you non-human demons assembled here are obstacles, so drink this cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. (laughs) And, you know, three of them went away. Three of them went away. But he was still unable to make the other four go away. So then he said, oh, well, I realize you're magical obstacles. So then he sang a song of confidence in his understanding and in the view. And again, I'm skipping it because it's really long, but beautiful poetry of confidence in his understanding in the view. He ends that with, it's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. So it's like, oh, okay. So three of them vanished like a rainbow. The remaining one performed an imposing dance, and Mila thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. So then he sang like a song of the view, the pinnacle of his realization. He reached into his deepest realization, and this ends with, a demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. So, demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk out our differences. Ah, ma, I feel compassion for this spirit. And then he prays, Lord Vajradhara, whose essence is absobhya, grant your blessings so that this lowly one, meaning himself, may have complete compassion. Thus Mila sang, and with friendliness and compassion, and without concern for his body, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon could not eat him, and so vanished like a rainbow. So, our steps of compassion. And when we really surrender, really surrender, we find the true compassion and the wisdom and the emptiness. But we can't fool it. We just can't fool it. (laughs) But I want to come back again to the fact that in this way I'm talking about it, the heart of compassion, of connectedness, of metta, is in the understanding, in the intention. It's like interior, you could say, from the inside out. And for sure, there's many people 
doing wonderful things in the world, really with really wanting to help, and this is great. But mostly if it's from the outside in, from an idea of what compassion is or what loving kindness should be, what it can still do good, you know. I'm not saying that's bad, that we have to wait until we're absolutely perfect milarepa before we do anything, right? But if it's, if it's from the outside in, matching an idea, matching a view, in the most part it's not sustainable. And it's not really uh, this depth of wholesomeness. I mean, we all know about peace marches that turn violent, or people really doing active social service work, environmental work, really good stuff that is so difficult that ends up getting fueled by anger, by despair, and starts to eat the person up, you know, from the inside. Not sustainable in that way. That's, that's not complete enough. That's not really the compassion that's coming from the inside out. That... I just love to hear about, read about, meet people that do seem to come from the inside out. It's incredibly inspiring. And you see, far from being passive, or what we say, a doormat, there's incredible courage. doesn't mean they can necessarily fix everything. The Buddha couldn't fix everything. But you really get a sense of the power of this coming from the inside out that the wise motivation that we can keep coming from, this ceaseless response, is because it's fueled by really knowing in ourselves the wisdom of our basic goodness. It's not... I mean, I see the difference in myself when I'm trying to be compassionate and when it just naturally springs forth. It's a world of difference. The second one has nothing to do with me. It's just you know, life responding to itself. The first one's all about me. And maybe I do something useful, but there's this tightness, this constraint. It's just very different, and it's not sustainable. Uh, So I'll just give examples because I love it. One that's always deeply affected me is uh, from Martin Luther King. At one point, in reading a biography of him, he was talking about, after that bombing of the the church in Birmingham where four little girls were killed. Really, really an awful thing. And he, of course, the whole, his whole, and the whole piece, the whole um, movement was of coming from the place of nonviolence. It's not just Dr. King. But one place where he said, you know, no matter what people do, I refuse to let hatred become our motive. I refuse to become bitter. That just really touches me a lot. I just refuse to act from hatred. I refuse to become bitter. And another place I read, um, still about Dr. King, the sense of not making someone the other. And that's how we get into hatred. That's how we get into bitterness. Where He was on a plane, uh, and there was a Justice Department lawyer, and this was the time the Justice Department was kind of you know, not really being very supportive, you know, but kind of trying to work a little in the background. And at this point, there was one of Dr. King's um, main advisors was uh, a, a lawyer from New York, 
um, a white lawyer from New York who many years ago had been uh, involved. He'd had some communist connections, you know, like in the 50s or gone to some communist meetings or something. And so this was around in the early 60s when it was still this big thing if anyone had been a communist or ever shook hands with someone who was a communist. It wasn't that far from McCarthyism, you know. And so this Justice Department lawyer spent the, the whole plane trip trying to urge Dr. King to abandon this friend of his who was also one of his advisors. He's saying, look, this guy used to have communist connections. You shouldn't be seen with him. It's going to you know, look bad at your movement and blah, blah, blah. And he said he was talking and Dr. King was being very polite and listening and responding. And suddenly, this Justice Department guy said, he suddenly he got it. He said, oh, this man I'm talking to, Dr. King, he would never shun even the most hateful segregationist bomber. If that person came up to him and really said, you know, he wanted to meet him as another human being and shake his hand, Dr. King wouldn't put him out of his heart. Okay, that's not this guy's language, out of his heart, but he wouldn't shun him. And he said, never mind a friend. You know, so he's being very friendly to me, but he's not about to make this friend the other because maybe he has some bad connection. He's not about making anyone the other. Really, really, how can we do that if it doesn't come from deep within our own understanding, our own way of being? It can't just be an idea. How are we going to act when the chips are down? Aung San Suu Kyi is another one like that. You know who she is, right? Still under house arrest. Oh, better part of 18 years. I read once, she said, when she first went back to Burma, you know, she lives, lived in England with her husband and kids. She first went back to Burma in 88, not to be part of the, uh, the democratic movement and the demonstrations that were happening. They weren't happening yet. But because her mother was really sick and dying, and she went back to take care of her. So she just happened to be in Burma in 88 when the demonstrations and uprising happened then, the democratic, you know, demonstrations for democratic, and when they were so ruthlessly put down. And because of her father having been a hero of independence in 48, 49, she became the figurehead and because of her own strength of, of heart. But this is what she said. She said, I never had any idea to become the head of the democratic movement for Burma or any kind of icon to the Burmese people. She said, I suppose people think I'm extraordinary because I'm so simple that they can't believe it. I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there's something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. Just that quality. Incredible courage, right? It's not about being a doormat at all. I, I have friends who live across the street from Aung San Suu Kyi's house. So mostly for years, that ever since I've been going to Burma, that road's been blocked off. But last year, now, forget about it, but last year there was a little short instant where it wasn't, and so they, like, sneaked me into their house for tea. It was kind of cool, because I, just to see, oh, Suchi's over there. I mean, it was still guarded, you know, and it's way in the background. But, you know, just seeing someplace gives you more sense of the reality. And so just driving by her, her house, which you can't really see, but just down in there, 
I was talking to my, my friend Kinson, and we thought, wow, just on a daily basis, what must her life be like? She's been locked up in this house with maybe one or two ladies to help cook for her and take care of her, no phone, no other contact, for years, years, all by herself. What would your days be like? What would your years be like? Her husband died, her kids have grown up. What would it just be like on a day-to-day basis? What quality of sincerity of wisdom and motivation the willingness to keep coming from. And she does. Every time anyone has a chance to speak with her, she keeps coming from clarity, wisdom, and compassion. You know, she's never in any public way given into anger, bitterness, or just get me out of here, you know? Incredible power of heart and mind. And she said, if there's anything I think needs to be done in the name of love, in the name of justice... But it's, you know, in terms of actions in the world, it isn't easy. In terms of just being with ourselves, with the pain of ourselves, it isn't easy. Because for great karuna, for ourselves, for the world, it doesn't matter. And it really moves from self into the world. I know you must have experienced this. I have many times. Well, just like today, when I dropped into that, you know, just the sense of the sadness, the sadness of change and old age and suffering and illness. It stops being about me personally or this particular story. I mean, just not even thinking about it. It just becomes the pain of the world. In that moment, there really isn't a sense of differentiation or, oh, why me or why my mother or why. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is part of life on this planet. And we feel really connected Whenever I've been in a hospital or when I've had friends, this might sound really, this might sound silly or, but I'll say it anyway, this isn't personal, but someone was telling me once she was on retreat and she was doing eight precepts and really, really hungry at night. And at first she was having a lot of aversion, a lot of, you know, reaction to it. And then she, it it kind of hit her. This might seem like, you know, a coddled kind of, American who's had everything, but it was very sincere. I thought it was very touching. She said, she said, I've spent so much time in India where there's so many people who are really starving, and I thought I was compassionate, but I never really let it in. You know, I mean, we can't really know what it's like to be starving, but I never even could let it in what that might feel like. And when I just opened to my little simple hunger pangs without it being all about me, it opens into the hunger in the world. I mean, I really get a sense, oh, there's people everywhere in the world going to bed hungry, and they don't have a choice, you know? We never know what way the connectedness takes us in, but really the sense of our dukkha stops being personal, and it starts being that of all beings. So whether it's for here, whether it's in the world, great compassion really needs to be balanced with wisdom, with equanimity with the equanimity that first knows we can't control all the results. We can't. Like, like Martin Luther King or like Su Chi, how can we stay open? How can we keep connecting when the results not even don't turn out good, but sometimes turn out really bad? How do we not you know, let bitterness become our motive? Moment to moment, moment to moment. 
also knowing that we can act with really sincere compassion and, as I said before, not have the big picture, not be able to have the big picture, but still do what we need to do. Like um, Sister Chan Kong, who was, is the, the nun who's a close colleague of Thich Nhat Hanh, in, she talks about in her autobiography in the Vietnam War, when she was quite young then, and uh, still quite a peace activist, Buddhist activist. And at one point, she was thrown in jail, the South Vietnamese jail, for she'd been handing out some peace pamphlets, something like that. And she was in a, a, a big holding cell with maybe 16 or 20 women of all ages. And she said in that cell there were two young girls, 11, 12 years old, who had been just kind of swept up in a sweep that the South Vietnamese did of a village. You know, these are all Viet Cong, you know, and threw them in jail. And they were just young girls in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong place. It's where they lived. But anyway, they, you know, had done nothing. And they were in this bad environment with some hardened criminals. So she, Sister Chan Kong, got released soon through connections. Her family had connections. And as she was leaving and having, I guess, kind of an outtake interview with the head of the jail, she said to him, oh, well, by the way, there's these two young girls. They didn't do anything. It's really not good for them. Maybe you could, you know, let them out. And he said, oh, so I see that the prisoners are talking to each other. I see that the prisoners are exchanging information. This is not okay. I'm going to really harden up the conditions here. Thank you for letting me know this. How would you feel? How could we refuse to let bitterness become our motive? How could we keep... And also, for me, I could imagine being a more passive type. I say, okay, that's the last time I ever try to do anything to help anybody. You know, I'm just screwing it up worse. But that's also aversion, you know, despair. So that's our... Uh, that's our Cohen. I don't have the answer. But I do know moment to moment, moment to moment, how am I meeting this moment? And when it all seems too big, when the vastness in the world seems too big, the suffering in the world seems too big, I know for me there's plenty of times when I just feel overwhelmed listening to the news. or you know, It can be my own life. It can be pick your spot on the planet overwhelming. If I keep going into that, it is too much. And, and uh, the, the wisdom, the compassion isn't strong enough in that moment. But if I can just come back from ideas to meet the moment, then it's possible again. One thing that I just want to offer, because it's been really interesting and helpful for me, is a practice that Dingo Kensi Rinpoche uh, mentions in his book Heart Treasure of the Enlightened Ones, which is a lot about Chenrezig, who is uh, in the Tibetan cosmology. He's the Buddha of compassion, Chenrezig. So just one point, he's talking about imagining that all phenomena are Chenrezig. So he says, when it's like this, then you imagine, in this sense, all appearances, everything you see, all form is Chenrezig's body. All sounds, whether it's the sounds of animals or the wind or people or machinery, all sounds are Chenrezig's voice, the voice of the Buddha of compassion. All thoughts, all moods, all mental experiences are the blissful unity of compassion and emptiness. Everything 
is the manifestation of Chenrizi. Play with that. I was, I was playing with it once when I was on a self-retreat for a month. And it was, no, don't get too trippy about it. But just, just not, I especially was doing it with thoughts and emotions. I thought, I'm going, oh, that again. I go, oh, that's Chenrizi's emptiness and compassion. That's just Chenrizi manifesting. Well, it was somehow magically, I didn't get all upset at it. Oh, Chenrizi, emptiness and compassion, just manifesting. So it's like everything is of one taste, and the response of acceptance and compassion really came quite naturally. It's just a lovely, for me, shift on how I perceive all aspects of the universe. All sounds are Chenrizi's voice, so I didn't differentiate between the dogs, the motors, the sounds I like, the sounds I don't like. What is that? Oh, it's Chenrizi. Hard to get mad at Chenrizi. And it really was quite lovely in the effect that it had. I just want to offer that. And in terms, again, of this refusing to become bitter, the story of the Dalai Lama, an interview with him, where he's talking about some young Tibetan men. He was having a discussion with them, and they were basically young and saying, look, your way of working with the Chinese, with nonviolence, isn't working. Basically, they're taking over Tibet, destroying our culture. Basically, the young saying to the old, old man, it isn't working. We need to do something else. We need a different procedure, a different way. And in this interview, so the Dalai Lama was weeping, and he said, you know, you may be right. Maybe it isn't working, but I cannot be otherwise. I cannot. So I just want to end with a a line from this is actually Adi Ashanti saving all beings is not something that you do saving all beings is a verb that you become you become the saving of all beings that's just what you are emptiness and compassion working together So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Um.